Before we get started, let me pray for us as we open God's Word. Lord Jesus, as we have been singing to you, you are very real. We are not talking about a philosophy of life. We're not talking about a code of ethics. This morning we come to worship a very real, very risen, very alive King. Father, we thank you that we can hear your word through your servant John who had the very unique perspective of having spent three years with you, having seen you risen, and having seen you glorified in the revelation when he saw that you were high and lifted up above all things. You are the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. We worship you as our Redeemer, as our Restorer, as our King. Holy Spirit, we welcome you today. Do your good work in us. Draw us near to the Father. Convict us of our sin. May we worship you and you alone. Amen. In 1 John, and we're going to be spending our time in John 21 in the Gospel of John, but in the epistle that John wrote, 1 John 1, 1 1-4, he says this, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, we touched with our hands concerning the word of life, Jesus. The life was made manifest, or it was revealed to us, and we have seen it, and we testify to it. And proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you. So that you may also have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father. So if you're having fellowship with us and we're having fellowship with the Father, the goal is for you to know the Father. And with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be made complete. Again, as we pray, John had a very unique perspective. John was an eyewitness not only of the Savior as he walked with him, but he saw him resurrected and he saw him risen. He saw him in glory. He was an eyewitness. And so if John was with us here today, he would sit up here and he would say, I was there. I was there when I was walking with John the Baptist and following his teachings. And John the Baptist said, as Jesus walked by, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I was there. I was there by the sea when he called us to be with him. Not just follow him, but be with him. I was there when he turned the water into wine at Cana. I was there when he met the woman at the well and he told her things about herself that she she couldn't believe. And I saw a whole village follow Jesus. I was there. 
I was there when he healed the official son simply by saying, you are healed with his words. I was there when we saw a man who was crippled by the, by the pool of Bethesda, who had been crippled for years and years and years, and Jesus said, rise. I was there. I saw it. I was there when he fed 5,000 people at one time. I was there when he calmed the sea by simply saying, be still. I was there. I was there when he touched lepers and they were healed. I was there when he preached about the kingdom of God in the Sermon on the Mount. And our hearts longed to know God the Father through his Son. I was there when he confronted the religious leaders because they were putting burdens on the people that they were not willing to bear and misrepresenting God the Father. I was there when he cast out demons from that wild man on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. I was there when he raised Lazarus from the dead. I was there in the Last Supper when the King of Kings, the Lamb of God, served us and washed our feet. I was there. I was there when he called us to Gethsemane, to the garden, to pray, and I fell asleep. I was there when I heard voices coming up the pathway. And I was there when Jesus spoke and they, all those hundreds of soldiers fell on their face. And I was there when he willingly gave himself to them on my behalf. I was there because I was part of, was friends with the royal family. I was an insider. I was there and saw the illegal trial before Annas and Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. I was there. I was there when they took him off. I was there when they scourged him. I was there when they nailed the spikes in his hand and raised him up with a jolt on the cross. I was there. I saw it. I was there when he looked to the thief and said, today you will be with me in paradise. I was there. I was there when he looked at his mother. He's sitting on the cross. He's dying. And his concern is for the thief on the cross. His concern is for the, his mother and said, John, take care of my mother when I'm gone. I was there. And I was there, and as he gave his last breath, he said, it's finished. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. I was there. And I was there in the room when we heard the pounding on the door, thinking the soldiers had come to, to arrest us, and yet it was Mary, and she said, they've taken the body. I don't know where they've taken him. And Peter and I ran, and we just saw the... the the death clothes, the burial clothes there. I was there. Empty tomb. There was nobody there. I saw that. And I was there when we were scared out of our wits. And we, and we were talking among ourselves. What are we going to do? And he appears to us. And he says, peace be with you. I was there when he said, touch my hands. Touch the scars. In my hands and my feet and my side. I was there. That was John. He was there. He was the eyewitness. He was telling us why 
so that we would know him. Not so that we could be a part of an organized religion that holds these certain truths. He's telling us this so that we would know Jesus the way he knew Jesus. Not about him. So that we would know him. So we'd be amazed by him. So we'd be enamored by him. That's why he's given us this eyewitness testimony through the Gospels. That's the purpose. So that you and I may know Jesus. And through knowing Jesus, that we would be changed. So that's what John is doing throughout the Gospel of John. Now, in John 21, now many folks think this is not part of the original canon because it doesn't quite fit. Because, as we noticed last week um, with um, Kevin, he said uh, in verse 20, Now, Jesus did many other signs in the uh, presence of the disciples um, that were not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and in believing you may have life in his name. So, Many critics say, well, gosh, this is kind of an add-on. This, is, this doesn't quite fit. And yet, that's really not the case. In John 1, he gives us a prologue, right? He gives us a prologue to the gospel. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He created all things. All things are held together by Him. And then he begins to tell and prove that, he is, that this Jesus is what he says, what he declares in chapter 1. Well, chapter 21 is what we'd say an epilogue. He's tying up loose ends so that we can have a kind of a whole picture of this Jesus, this Messiah, this King. And so let's read from verse 21, 1 through 14. And after Jesus had revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and Tiberias is simply another word for Galilee. So in, um, in Matthew 28, 10, now many people, and we'll talk about it in a second, um, believe the the disciples had kind of lost their way when they they're about to go fishing, but he had commanded them to go to Galilee. Okay, he commanded, "I want you to meet me on the mount in Galilee." And so they have made their way up to Tiberias to Galilee, and he revealed himself in this way: Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others who were disciples, uh, who were his disciples, were together. Now, one thing, especially in ancient literature, to distinguish between what is myth and what is true, historical narrative, historical narrative gives a lot of details that aren't really necessary. He doesn't say, well, the disciples. He gives seven of them. And he names five, and he says two that he doesn't give a name for. That's interesting. But he's given us details so that we know this actually happened. This is not random. And we'll see that again in a minute. So... These men are there, and then Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing, which is really interesting. I can see him saying, he's a doer, and he's supposed to be waiting on Jesus. He's going, I ain't going to sit here and just do nothing. Let's just go fishing. And all the other disciples, we've got to eat, right? All the other disciples said, okay, we'll go with you. And they went out and got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. Okay, so they, they're, they're working all night long, and they catch nothing. Verse 4, just as day was breaking, so it's very early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, and yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Now, that would be common. You're 100 yards away, light's breaking, it's early morning, they see the shadow on the, on the, on the beach there of the Sea of Galilee, 
They don't recognize who it is. And Jesus said to them, children, or we could translate that lads, boys, guys. Lads, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. And he said to them, cast a net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. Now, if you've been a fisherman and you've been fishing all night and you're casting all night and you don't catch anything, you're open to suggestions, right? He says, well, you might want to cast over there. And that's what they do. And so they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. The disciples whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, so, so John is saying to Peter, it's the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment. See, they, they, were, they were working, and usually that would either be working naked or having taken the outer garment and wrapping it around you. So Simon Peter gathers up his clothes and he jumps in. Now think of that. We're going to get back to that in a minute. So he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. And the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, and they were not far off from land, but about a hundred yards off. Verse 9, And when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, Bring some fish that you have just caught. Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, not just small fish, full of large fish, 153 of them. It's interesting, there's 153. And, and biblical scholars for years have tried to figure out, is there some sort of meaning in 153? No, I just think there's 153 big fish. These are businessmen, they're counting out. How do we divide this up? Or this was a huge catch. Somebody count how many we got. So there's 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Now they're not doubting who it is. It's almost like this text is reading, is this true? Is this true? Are we sitting here with our Savior? I can't believe it's too good to be true. And Jesus came and he took the bread and he gave it to them. And so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Now, there's a lot of things we could do with this passage. It's a simple passage. Simple story. But there's three observations I think we can make from this passage. The first observation will be that Jesus again demonstrates himself with authority over creation. And he also demonstrates his generosity toward those he loves. Now, again, this is important to see because many folks say, well, you know, these disciples, Jesus really didn't rise again from the dead. They just saw, they just thought they saw him. They had a kind of a large group hallucination. They had talked themselves into this Jesus. And, that, and, they, and they even used a passage like this. They didn't even recognize him. They didn't even know if that was really him or not. And yet, how does a hallucination say, hey, why don't you cast it on the right side? And they get 153 fish. That doesn't happen. This is a very real Jesus, resurrected, King of kings, Lord of lords, appearing to his disciples. And he's using his authority, even as a resurrected king, to say, fish. Go into the nets on the right side. He has command over his creation. But not only that, it's, 
His command is generated by His generosity toward, his, toward those He loved. They had a need. They needed a fish. They needed food. They needed perhaps money. And He met their need. We can't miss this because not only did He... Whoa! Not only did He bring in the catch, but He serves them. Again... Think about this, because we hear these stories all the time. And it just passes right, it washes over us, and we don't even get the, the significance of it. Here is the resurrected Jesus, who as He did when he, was on, when he was in human flesh, He is doing what? He is thinking about the needs of those He loves. The King who should be Receiving gifts is giving. The king who should be served is serving. He completely turns the tables on how we think about leadership, how we think about lordship, how do we think about authority. And he's sacrificially always concerned about others. Our God is an amazing God. This would have been unheard of from a king in the ancient world. Kings were there to be served, not to serve. They were there to receive gifts, not to give gifts. They were there to rule, not to lay down their lives. And yet Jesus, God, changes things around. He served them by making them breakfast and He provided for their needs. Our God is a generous God. He is not miserly. He is not withholding. If you look at Ephesians chapter 3, and this is one of my favorite passages, Ephesians chapter 1, when it talks about as He gives life to those He loves, He doesn't do it sparingly. He does it lavishly. Praise be to God. The, praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with what? In the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. Verse 4, For He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love He predestined us to adoption as a sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with what? His good pleasure. And His good will to, pray, to the praise of His glorious grace, which He has what? Freely given to us in the one He loves. In Him we have the redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with what? The riches of His glorious grace that He lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, He made known to us the mystery, real, mystery of His will according to the kind intention of His will and according to His pleasure. As we look at Jesus... And as you look at, he freely gives. That is the heart of the Father. He is simply, he is the image of the Father showing us. He is revealing the Father's heart. Soak in that. Let it transform us. Because as his people, guess what? He wants us to freely give. He wants us to freely lay down our lives. He wants us to freely be generous in every aspect of our life. Be generous of grace, lavish grace, lavish things on others. Live recklessly with generosity toward others, not foolishly. That is the king. That's the heart of the king. And I think we see glimpses of that in this passage.
as he's serving, not, uh, not giving, or not receiving. The second thing is that Jesus demonstrates the type of people he's drawing into his kingdom and with whom he's going to build his church. Now think about this. Jesus didn't go to the high priest. He didn't go to the royalty, to the authorities. He went to the common men of the community. He picks Peter, who's impetuous, he's a leader, often stumbling over his words. Yes, I will serve you till I die, and then he, and then he, he denies Christ. He's a traitor, flawed man, and yet Jesus has called him to build his church. You look at John and James, the sons of thunder. When they were in a Samaritan town that didn't receive him, they said, Lord, let us call down fire and destroy all these people. That would be what I would do. Or having their mama say, hey, Jesus, could you maybe put James and John on your right and on your left? Can you give them positions of authority? He just says, you don't understand at all. He wants to be first must be last. We look at Thomas, the realist, kind of show me, then I'll believe, the doubter. Then we look at Matthew, the tax collector, hang out with prostitutes and sinners. And in the same group, we have Simon the Zealot, who would be, in our terms, either a political terrorist or a political activist. Let's try to bring down this government. We've got to do something. And God is bringing them all, Jesus is bringing them all into the fold in order to build his church, to lead his church. He does things very differently than us. And then later on, he doesn't stop with the disciples in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 11. He says, or do you, know not, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? So that is true. The righteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. So do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. These folks aren't going to make it. But guess what he says next? And such were some of you. You were an adulterer, Paul Connor. You were a thief. You were a reviler. Neil Vincent, you were the worst of the bunch. What does he say? But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. By the Spirit of our God. In Colossians 3.11, there were Jews and Greeks. There were barbarians. There were Scythians. There were slaves and there were freemen. The nets, so to speak, are cast out and drawing many into the kingdom. And those nets aren't going to break. They aren't going to break. He will call all that he cares to call from all over the world. He'll clean us up. He'll purify us. He'll sanctify us. Because he's God. And lastly, so, you know, so on that point, whatever your background, whatever heinous sin you think you have sinned, I can guarantee it's not as bad as mine. You're welcome at the table through the blood of Christ. You're welcome. Come and eat. And then thirdly, as we close up, 
we see the response of the one who's experienced the gospel of grace. If you remember in Luke 5, that's where we, that's where we first see the interaction between Jesus and, and Peter. So Peter and his men have been fishing all night long. They've pulled their boats to the shore. Jesus is preaching to the, to the crowds on the shore, and he says to Peter, he says, Peter, I want to get in your boat. Let's go out just a little way so I can preach. So Peter says, okay. You know, we didn't catch anything, so we haven't even fished the process. And so he casts out a little bit, and Jesus begins to preach. And a little bit later he says, I want you to go a little bit further out. I want you to cast your nets again. And, and Peter says, you don't understand, Lord. You're a carpenter. I'm a fisherman. We've been fishing all night. We've gone to every hole that we know that we can go to. My honey hole didn't have any fish. There are no fish. And we don't fish during the day because they can see our nets. Jesus says, cast them over here, and he casts them. And they were so full that they couldn't bring them in the net. The nets began to break. The boats began to sink. And what was Peter's response? Peter's response was, Depart from me, O Lord, for I'm a sinful man. Depart from me. That is our natural response when we come before the light, when we come before the King, when we come before the Holy of Holies, is we draw back and we go, I cannot take this. My guilt is overwhelming me. Go away. And we create space between us and Him. That's our natural reaction. And that's what Peter did. Peter saw the authority of Jesus. He saw the holiness of Jesus. But that's only part of what he saw. He didn't see the grace of Jesus in Luke 5. Now, let's fast forward to this scenario. They're out. They've been fishing all night long. They hadn't caught anything. They're about ready to pull up their nets and go home. And they see somebody on the on the on the short he says have you caught any fish no and cast it on the right side all right and all these fish come in john says peter it's the lord what was john what was peter's response think about this peter had just denied christ just a few days before he had seen them take him away he had cursed the name of jesus turned his back on him as Jesus looked at him. And he went out and he wept bitterly. He had more reason to pull away and separate himself than ever before. But that's not what he did, is it? Because when they were at Gethsemane, and Jesus looked at Peter and he says, Peter, you've got to pray. Because Satan himself has asked to sift you like wheat. But I will pray for you. And after you fall, Jesus knows he will deny you. Jesus knows that he will be the traitor. And he looks at him and says, Peter, afterwards, I want you to go and encourage the disciples. Before it's even happened, Jesus knows it, and he's poured grace upon grace. What does that do to the heart of and when he appears to him in the room, now we don't have a record of this. I can only imagine the last time Jesus caught the eye of Peter, it was when the 
cock crowed three times. I can only imagine in that room, Jesus gets eye contact with Peter. He says, peace be with you. Peace be with you. That's not just, may your worries go away. Peace is shalom. May there be well-being with you, Peter. May you flourish. That's what he's saying. So when Jesus, when Peter hears that it's the Lord, he flings himself, casts himself into the sea, and swims desperately as fast as he can to get close to Jesus, not to go away. That's the heart of the gospel. That's the heart of the gospel. When we've tasted it, our inclination is to go, but Jesus says, Come, swim desperately to me. So what's our application? This gospel was written so that you and I may know intimately and believe in Jesus. That we would know Him viscerally. Not just here, but here. That we would know and believe if you're overwhelmed by sin and shame and guilt, turn to the one who says, Peace be with you. Be still my soul. Know that He is your God. Draw near to Jesus. When you've sinned as heinously as you think you possibly can. Run headlong, tripping over yourself, gathering anything you can to go to the feet of Jesus. Because he says, peace, well-being, shalom be to you. That's our King. That's our God. And He will change us from the inside out so that He would sanctify us. Just as His Word says, you and I were just like these folks. And such were some of you. Such were you, Neil. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and the Spirit of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you give us your word through your servant John. These are not just John's words. These are your words to us. Lord, I pray, O oh God, that through your words to us in this gospel, that we would know and that we would believe and that we would follow the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who is generous beyond our comprehension, who is more powerful than anything we can imagine, who's King, He rules over all the universe. And yet, You have chosen to lavish Your grace and Your love and Your mercy on us. We cannot comprehend it, but we receive it. Draw us near to You so that we would be conformed to the image of Christ and we would be just like Him. May that change our community. May that change our neighborhoods. May that change our workplaces. May that change our families. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.